0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensible Plants Podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Joining us today is my friend and one of the most hardworking, compassionate, collaborative botanists I know, Wes Knapp. He's joining us from NatureServe to talk about a few exciting topics, which includes the rediscovery of an oak thought to be extinct, as well as extinction gardens. But first I want to give a shout out to to the latest producers on this podcast, a big thank you goes to Robin and Kina. Both of them are making episodes like this possible. If you want to find out how you can be like Robin and Kina, go over to patreon.com slash plants and check out what we got going on over there because I could not be doing this podcast without all of the patrons that support it. I can't thank them enough. But in the meantime, let's get on with the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Wes Knapp. I hope you enjoy. All right. Wesley, or as I know you, Wes Knapp, welcome back to the podcast. It is so great to have you back on. A lot has changed since we last talked. So for those that haven't been listening since the beginning, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me back, Matt. I guess I was on, was that 2020? Yeah, it was. Kind of when the world was spiraling out of control. Yeah, because we met
0: right before lockdown. So
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) it was a magic take a moment for us both. i um so i was a, a botanist in the maryland natural heritage program and then the north carolina natural heritage program for over 20 years i get to go out and explore natural areas try to find rare species and work to get those places protected it was a really great career and job and then in uh 2020 i when the reason i was on your podcast i did this big study with a whole group of experts from across the u.s and canada looking at the extinct plants of the US and Canada, to see what we could learn from their extinctions, how to prevent plant extinctions in the future. And that's really what drives me at this point in my career is like that kind of high level plant conservation. So in um, 2021, just last year, November, I accepted the position as chief botanist here at NatureServe, which is a real different job for me, um, (laughs) where I get to uh, work with all the heritage programs across the United States, or we call member programs across the US and Canada. And try to help standardize data collection methods and do global conservation rank assessments. So, uh, you know, if you've heard like the jargon of like G1, S1, that's what NatureServe does. We work on global status assessments and we work with states or subnational units to do their subnational records. We can talk in detail about all this stuff because I'm sure you have listeners who don't know anything about what I'm talking <laughs> about right now. But I do big level plant conservation at this point in my career. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, that's exciting. And of course, we've talked before, but congrats on the new position. They're very lucky Thanks. to have you. And I just love having an advocate with your level of passion and knowledge in a place to make truly make a difference in, in plant conservation, at least here in North America.
1: Man, don't set the bar too high. I'm trying. <laughs>
0: So yeah, you bring up this idea of subnational and global assessments. I always thought they were state assessments and then I recently saw you give a talk and I was like, "Oh, subnational, I should probably know that." But you'll see it S1, S2, S3, you know, up to 5, G1 yeah. to G5. Um what is that?
1: Yeah, so it's a basically an extinction matrix. So 5 being the most common and 1 being the rarest. So if you walk outside and you look at a plant it's probably an S5 in your state. Like those are common species, S4 or S5. The rarest plants in your state would be S1, or if like you're in a Canadian province, they'd be S1 because they have rarity threats and trends all going against them to put them in the highest tier of ranking, which is one. Um, so we have the scale S1 to 5, 1 being the rarest, 5 being the most common. Then we have the global rank that parallels it 1 to 5. So you can have a G1, S1, which would be a globally rare one on that level, but also subnationally one at that level. Mm. So we've done this for all the plants. Um, many of the animals in many of the high quality habitats in the U.S. and Canada were the data standard for Canada. And we have member programs across the United States who maintain level data at the subnational level. And they all collect data kind of in the same method. So we can compare apples to apples. And we're talking about the rarity of organisms across the U.S. and Canada.
0: Right, And that's that standardization that's absolutely key and crucial to making this meaningful and impactful because you have to know sort of where the bar is set to understand what is in need. And and one thing that I, I find difficult to communicate to people is a plant that is, say, G3 to G5, but also S1 in their particular area. And you're like, how can it be? And you're like, oh, you're probably edge of range, but there could be a lot of other things going on. And that's where sort of parsing out the data and, and, and so I guess wrangling cats <laughs> is a good way to put it is trying to figure out where that all falls out. Right. For any given species.
1: Yeah, it is because you know, I'm though I'm chief botanist at nature serve, I don't have any power over any member program. So we have to do conservation through collaboration. And I can just point out where things might be inconsistent or need some kind of data smoothing. Cause you know, with the flora, it's a massive undertaking. Mm-hmm. Like there's 15,000 species in the U S and Canada. Hmm. So trying to hone all that data together to do assessments is really difficult. There's limited funding. Um, but, you know, those member programs have among the best botanists ever lived in their states or provinces. So we're getting really the best available data oftentimes for any species we're curious about. And uh, when like some of the numbers we have at NatureServe in our database are really astonishing. Like there's <laughs> like, I believe there's like 93,000 tracked species and ecosystem Dang. records wow. in the database. Uh, we have like 980 geospatial documentation locations for plants, animals and habitats. So we can do like assessments to realize okay, 32% of all the plants are at risk of extinction, which would be G1, G2, or G3. And that's where nature spends most of our time is on the globally rare species. But the state programs, like when I was in Maryland, we had a lot of things we cared about that our edge of range. They're either at the southern end of their range in western Maryland in the mountains, or the northern edge of their range on the coastal plain, down where I lived on the Delmarva Peninsula. So those could be G5 common in the southeastern United States, but we'd have one location in the coastal Maryland for that plant. And you might not think that's all that important, but that's the start of, if you lose that, that's how you have range collapse, is you first lose the periphery of a species range, then you can lose important genetic alleles, and then you have collapse of the species throughout the rest of its range. So I think it's really important to maintain our data at the subnational level at the edges of their range, even if they're not globally rare.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and I know you work with a lot of single site endemics, a lot of species that could hypothetically wink out with one catastrophic event. But when you think of the big picture of conservation, would you say a lot of what we see in rarity and and species approaching or even falling into that extinction bin, it's a it's death by a thousand cuts. It's it's those S1s, S2s winking out over time and then you kind of just have to push the bar and and figure out what what's next, I guess, on the chopping yeah. block.
1: That's such a hard question because most of the time we're really not sure what caused an organism to go extinct, unless mm. it was known from just a single place and that place was destroyed. Right. Okay, that's easy. Oftentimes, all we have is a an obscure herbarium specimen. <laughs> okay, that thing is clearly different. We're not exactly sure where it was, but it hasn't been seen in two hundred years, so <sighs> we're pretty sure it's gone. Wow other times it could there were a couple of species that were pretty broad ranging and it probably was the death by the thousand cuts thing like you had you know stream channelization rip wrapping of shoreline um fertilization which nutrified streams like so you had a lot of things going against it that caused the extinction of a widespread spe- species but you mentioned those single site endemics that's one of my The projects I'm working on uh, right now in collaboration with the U.S. Botanical Garden is to identify all the plants known from one occurrence in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. Canada, because the extinction work showed that the majority, like 64 percent of all the extinct plants were what we called single site endemics. Oh wow! And, you know, that old adage, like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. (laughs) These plants don't have that model, like they're only known from this one place or they've declined to just one place. So if we don't act to prevent their extinction, we're going to lose them. And this brings up a real point of contention sometimes in the conservation community. Do we work on like big landscape level conservation or site specific conservation? Mm. And I'm all for big landscape level conservation. We Need to keep common species common. But there are these sweetest species, these single site endemics, these plants of one known occurrence that if we don't focus on them explicitly, we're probably going to lose them. And I think we can, you know, work to prevent their extinction and we should work to prevent their extinction. Yeah.
0: Well, it's good perspective to even just have a finger on the pulse of what those real numbers actually are, because we're always chasing that real number. We'll never quite get there. But if a majority are going extinct, happen to be in that category of single site endemic, well, hey, that actually gives us sort of a place to work from to slow some of this biodiversity loss.
1: And that's the way I think about it. Like I, I'm kind of bridging this gap between field scientists and academic scientists. Like I'm <laughs> in the PhD program at UNC Chapel Hill Ooh. and uh, like, I'm going to, yeah, on top of everything I do. Um, so I'm going to finish my paperwork, so to speak. And, um, but, but I took on the extinction work as a field person who wanted to prevent extinction events. Yeah. Cause when you think about conservation, that's what it's about. It's about prevent like the lowest bar is preventing extinction events. Right. So let's learn from the conservation failures of the past and prioritizing these single site endemics is actually pretty easy. You just have to identify them. Right. We, but no one's done it. So this is a novel <laughs> method to prioritize conservation actions.
0: I mean, it still blows my mind, but it shouldn't at this point because I've had enough examples. But I, I think it's missed on a lot of people. It's just how many unknowns are out there. We're operating oh. with more, far more unknowns than we have even the slightest grasp on.
1: Yeah. And uh, one of the chapters of my PhD, which is still early in development, is going to be to quantify the rate of new species description in the southeastern United States for plants. Oh. And we're going to compare that with another hotspot in California. Bruce Baldwin's going to be involved in this, oh, nice. In this chapter. nice. Excellent. So we'll have uh, two globally, global biodiversity hotspots looking at the rate of alpha level taxonomic discovery. So people think it's done, but it's not. <laughs> and there are, like Alan Weekly maintains a list I think it's about a hundred plants of things we know that are different, but still hasn't been named. Dang. And until you name it, you can't really protect it or conserve it. Right. Cause you think about conservation is what is it, where is it and how is it doing? And if we don't know what it is, every other decision after that is incomplete.
0: Right. And that always brings in this like, well, what's its common name? Well, most of the species I'm <laughs> guessing you work with, We'll never have a common name, or you could slap something on there, but it's meaningless.
1: <laughs> yeah, common names are, are, are really turning into a bane of my existence. I'm not <laughs> sure if you saw this. So we, we just published the checklist of the Maryland plants. I
0: did. Congrats again.
1: <laughs> through the Smithsonian Press. And I'm really proud of this. And one of the things I decided to do was to provide a common name for people who refused to use Latin names. But this caused great consternation between my co author, Rob Noxie and I. Rob's doing the uh, Gleason and Cronquist revision, the floor oh, of the Northeastern nice. United States and adjacent Canada. Good. And uh, so he's been really influential in my career. And one of the things we put in the introduction is how the names we're providing really aren't even common names. They're more vernacular names, mm. kind of like a, an English translation of the Latin. <laughs> right. Because they don't really mean anything, because they're really not in common usage. And when you travel, You'll, you'll encounter new common names for the same plant or an inverse of common names where it might mean something in the East and it means something different in the West, which aids to confusion. Yeah. We kind of need to get over this. And um, the example I think about, and you probably know this example is dinosaurs, right? Little kids say Tyrannosaurus Rex. Right. They use the scientific names all the time. There's no expectation of like the little armed big dinosaur or whatever a <laughs> common name of T-Rex would be. Tyrant but lizard. for plants, we do. And I don't understand why. We just need- you learn acerubum's, what we're commonly referred to as red maple. Let's just get on board with the scientific names. It sounds scientific and elitist, but there's too many right. plants to go the common name route.
0: Right. And then you think of like, what does get a common name? Usually the most useful plants. Most plants, we haven't discovered a quote unquote anthropocentric use for them, but boy, yeah. are they important.
1: Yeah. And that that's another thing that's kind of challenging in plant conservation is the number one question is, well, what good is it? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's such it drips with um, like a human centric viewpoint that an organism doesn't deserve an existence if it doesn't provide me with right. some immediate tangible use Right. that it's a, you know, it's a challenge to talk about plant conservation sometimes in those circles.
0: Sure. But with all of the challenges you face every once in a very rare moment, you get to do something amazing for plant conservation. And sometimes that's taking a species thought to be extinct and realizing, no, it's still out there. Maybe not doing well, but it's still out there. And you guys hit the home run recently on a, a, a wonderful Oak that goes by the name Quercus Tartifolia.
1: That's right. No common name because there isn't one. <laughs> I but guess I'm you gl- could call glad... it the,
0: the late leaf Oak, but like I was like, yeah, that's, and
1: that's what people call it. They call yeah. it the late leaf oak because they vernacularized the, com- the scientific name, but I'm glad you said you guys discovered this cuz that is the truth. This was a large collaboration. There were nine of us in the field from across the US. And it would the, the this was like where to even begin. So back when I was doing that, <laughs> back when 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 we were doing the extinct plants work, I reached out to Murphy Westwood at the Morton Arboretum. It was like, "Murphy, you did the global conservation assessment of oaks and we have porcus tarifolia as data deficient." Hmm. And I brought up that it was only known from a small couple of trees that were last seen in like 1997 and thought to be extinct around 2011 they all died. it's like this doesn't sound data deficient it sounds like we have nothing left to protect but i can understand the designation of data deficient because you know there could always be more out there which is always one of the challenges with plant conservation you don't know what's up the next creek or over the next hill so nature we have two ranks we have gh which is globally historical which leaves some hope for rediscovery and then gx which is extinct which is kind of like the hard X when we've kind of given up. Yeah. So we had corcus tartifolia's GH with some possibility because it was the last collected in 1997 by uh, Michael and I think her name was Shirley Powell. He's at Saul Ross state. You wrote the floor of the trans Pecos, really great guy.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and he collected from boot Canyon in big Bend national park. So in 2021, I went down with Adam Black, who was uh, just a brilliant botanist who lived in Texas at the time. And we did a whole series of, of fieldwork where we collected um, everything in the red oak group we encountered. And we made molecular sp- vouchers because oh. there's some real problems with species delineations in southwest Texas and the oaks. Yeah,
0: oaks in general, but like, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, man. But the stakes get high there because you have like Quercus and Morii, which is G5. Mm and Corcus gravesii, which is G5 but then you have Corcus robusta which might be G1 Corcus thrilo- graciliformis which might be G1 and Corpus tardifolia, which is thought to be extinct. Wow. And if you can't identify these things in the field it's hard to like yeah. build conservation ah. action around them. Right. So we went down and just bailed hay and looked at a bunch of plants in like let's say May of 2021. And then in um September 2021 Adam and I Went back with uh, Andrew Hip of the Morton Arboretum, who runs their molecular leg. is a molecular phylogeneticist, and uh, Michael Eason, who's now at the San Antonio Zoo Botanical Garden. And Michael wrote the book, literally like the wildflowers of Texas. Nice, really knowledgeable, uh, wonderful photographer too. If you can check him out on Instagram, I think it's like TX Flora or something like that. But uh, we uh, and we went, went down with a reporter, Marion Renault, who did a really great piece in the New Republic on this hunt for Corpus Tardifolia and we didn't find it um but we got permits from big ben and we made a bunch of collections and we surveyed a bunch of stuff but one of the things we learned during that trip was if we were ever going to make a real stab at rediscovering that oak we'd have to set up camp in boot canyon because it is a multiple hour hike from the parking lot in the desert <laughs> yeah and yeah and so and you know what it's like backpacking like you have to carry all your gear like it's work and then you're hiking all day and then you have to make your food it becomes quickly like an onerous
0: Field trip. We have
1: this idea of romantic field work. And that's not really what this would be, but it kind of turned into that. So year two comes um, and it was a larger group. So I want to see if I can remember all the names because it's important for me to to call these people up. Because like the media celebration loves giving credit to a couple of people, but that's not really how it should be. Um, So I already mentioned Michael Easton at the San Antonio Zoo, Botanical Garden and Adam Black. He's now with Bartlett. He lives in North Carolina now. Um, but then we had people like, um, so Raymond, was our lead at the U.S. Botanical Garden. I mentioned Murphy Westwood already at Morton. But um, Emily Griswold with, is at UC Davis. She came down for field work. She studies oaks. And Philip Schultze, I think it was his last name, was at Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. He was a local who also helped us out with Elizabeth Thomas, who was working at Polly Hill at the time, Polly Hill Arboretum. I think that's Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. Sorry if I got that wrong. Yeah. And then know. Sarah Wiley was another arborist from California. So we had a big group of us. And we took pack mules in to Big Ben that were loaded up with gear. And we had this really um, wonderful, she's like a camp manager, but that really just um, does injustice to Kelsey, uh, Kelsey Wogan, because she organized our meals and thought all this out ahead of time and coordinated with the crew at Big Ben. So she was like our camp manager. So we, we had the pack mules bring all our gear into Big Boot Canyon, multiple hours in so you come out of the desert into like these sky islands that are forested because there's more moisture there nice and we set up camp at boot canyon but this cabin has been like attacked by bear over the years like the panels are all ripped out there's like (laughs) a there's solar panels for energy but it can only run so much at a time then you have to shut it off at night because there's no battery and there's like a stove and there's a water filtration system, but we all slept in tents. Right. But you had to take the tents down every night because the National Park Service rules with being an eye shot of the, of the, the trail. the oh, wow. was right through there. Because that was the other thing I learned that that tri- field trip in, in Boot Canyon is I was convinced that this plant needed more work because Boot Canyon, the last known place of Corcus Tartifolia, is basically dissected by a trail. And there's a spring there.
0: Mm hmm.
1: So there's a lot of people who are going to go there just because of the trail and the water access. Right. So the likelihood of a very rare plant being only found there struck me as survey bias. Yeah. Or survey effort. Definitely. So we uh, we set up camp there and it was like the third day into our journey. And th- this is a day of mixed emotion for me in that like, we didn't have cell reception that day. Like you don't have cell reception in big camp, like boot you have to go out to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, for like, we'd split up, we had walkie talkies. This is the third day. We've kind of done a lot of hiking at this point, but we ended up at the Eastern, which had just an incredible view into Mexico and our phones all blew up because we had signal. And this was the day of the Uvalde school shooting. Oh. So that was our introduction back into the world was Whoa. like, there was this horrific school shoot, Damn. but it was also really mixed for me because this that's the same day the New York Times published this big article on the Trillium Conservation Assessment Wow! that I was a part of. So I had this real swing of emotion already that day.
0: Yeah, that's heavy.
1: Um, but after lunch, we decided to, to visit an area. Actually, that wasn't far from where we set up camp. And we kind of spread out like a search party, like walking through the woods for a lost child or something, maybe 15 meters apart. Nice. And um, we, we weren't far from the trail, you know, maybe 50, 100 feet. And Michael Eason, that guy from San Antonio Zoo and Botanical, the San Antonio, uh, Botanic Garden, called out, hey, Wes, you need to get over here. Hmm. And, and Michael, like I, I've said this before, Michael wrote the book on the Texas floor. I'm not going to know a plant he doesn't know. <laughs> so he called me over and he holds these leaves up. And I was just really like, whoa we've not seen this and we've probably seen a thousand oaks at this right, point in this right. trip. And I immediately said, get Adam Black on the, on the walkie talkie right now. Immediately. Immediately. Cause Adam and I, the previous year went to Saul Ross state university and studied the specimens that were last collected by Michael Powell. And, and, and Adam was a, a skeptic in corcus tardifolia until he studied those specimens. Hmm. And he said, I have never seen an oak like this. Hmm. So when Adam came and looked at this tree, like Adam tells a story. This is funny because he was always the one we first vetted a weird oak past. And he was usually like, oh, that's a weird corcus gravesii. And when he tells this story, he was already saying in his head, oh, it's just another weird gravesii. But as soon as he saw the leaves up in the tree canopy, he was like, we've not seen this.
0: Nope.
1: Because corcus gravesii has like this uh, thin green leaf that you can kind of see kind of transparently through the sun mm. when you look up. And this species had a, had a, has a much thicker leaf. Uh, which doesn't allow the, the sun to trans, like penetrate through the leaf surface. And yeah. then the underside of the leaf is just covered with hair. It's huh. almost like an arachnoid pubescent wow kind of hairiness. It's really, really so quite stick. I'll have to send you some stark, photos.
0: Stark and yeah, distinct.
1: Very yeah. yes. And Adam was just wow. So the excitement kind of built that we'd found this tree, but Adam was also like the pathogen kind of expert. Like he'd worked in labs for a long time and he pointed out, he's like, This tree. Is not long for this world because it had all this epicormic branching all over the stem, which is a sign of stress, those little yeah. branches. And it had a fungal infection, and it had burned over the previous year because there's oh, a lot of dang. fire yeah. in Big Ben. So the base was all blackened. And uh, so we took pictures and specimens, like the pictures that are in the news. We did like a selfie with the tree and all this kind of stuff. But then we spread out like, oh, we're going to find some more. And we didn't find another tree. Damn. So this must be the rarest tree in the world. There's literally one left. And we have to work now to prevent its extinction wow yeah it's heavy
0: talk about mixed emotions man that's layer <laughs> after layer after like that yeah. yeah that was that's a true roller coaster ride but you know you highlighted two really really important things there to consider is the importance of the search image familiarity spending Absolutely. time with specimens spending time outside because there's no amount of written description that's going to give you that moment of yeah, that's weird. Let's look at it more. But then the other side is this sampling bias. And we are kidding ourselves if we don't think access yeah. and and just ease of grabbing and going hasn't painted our picture of what's going on out there. And it just really emphasizes the, we're doing the best we can with what we have, but like by no means have we done most of it.
1: Yeah. And that search image thing, when well, I, I made a name for myself early in my career and trying to travel a lot outside of my state. Yeah. So I could intimately learn the flora because there's no, there's no um, surrogate for that firsthand experience with the species you're looking for in the field. Like I'd say a picture is worth a thousand words, a specimen or an encounter in the field is worth a thousand pictures. <laughs> like it's really yeah. that important yeah. to know the organism in the field. So to have that from like Michael, Who found the tree knew it was something different, but he'd never like had that firsthand experience with the specimens. Right. And that helps. But even then, Adam, Michael had such familiarity with the oak flora that he knew immediately he saw something different. Yeah. And 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 that's where that just the underappreciation of the vast amount of field experience that this crew had really should be discussed more like just the hours Michael East and Adam Black had spent in Big Ben before this trip must have been in the thousands of hours <laughs> right uh, so and you there's no replacing that kind of intimate field knowledge
0: yeah yeah and i mean i will never devalue the molecular side of phylogenetic oh, yeah. understanding uh-huh. how things but you can't see alleles in the field you can't see dna and and it, it, unless it's manifesting something in the phenotype there's yeah. no substitute for being out there, seeing how these plants grow, and, and and not necessarily knowing everything that you do know. It's being able to go, that is different. I don't know that. And that, to me, is the most exciting moment because either way, you're learning something. Maybe it's yeah. something very special, but you, you get to gain in that moment.
1: Yeah, and you, and you bring up a good point, right? Some authors think that Quercus tardifolia because it's only been known from Let's say there's a dozen herbarium sheets that exist. And that's a generous (laughs) estimate. But let's say there's 12 sheets. If you're trying to describe the oak diversity of the world, like you're the Florida North America author, you have a limited number of specimens to even look at. Yeah. So it's hard to delimit a species when it's only been collected from a couple of trees ever. So I can understand experts being like, well, maybe that's just a hybrid between two parents of unknown origin. Or, you know, and honestly, maybe it is. I'm, I look forward to seeing what the molecular results will be because yeah. we mail, we collect the material sent it to Andrew's lab. Hopefully awesome. we'll have results this winter. Like you should have a really nice story to tell about what are these very rare oaks in Southwest Texas? How do we tell them apart and which ones are worth conservation value? But until we get that data, we shouldn't stand pat on corpus tardifolia. No, like we should really, we're going to do some ex-situ conservation. Like we're working with the park service. We'll do some. Cuttings and grafting onto, nice, um, on to jumpstart some some a crop of plants because you can't. We're we're concerned we won't have acorns because we have one individual. Yeah, and if we do have an acorn, we don't know what the parentage of that acorn could be. It could be a, of hybrid origin. We don't want to preserve that genetic material. So we're going to do some cuttings and some stump sprout kind of rescue in nice. pots, and then we'll have the opportunity to move this to other places if we see fit at Big Ben because we think it's like an ancient relic. And Ah. that the habitat around it has changed because the the world is drying. It's been drying for a long time. Fire frequencies are more uh, intense now. And this oak apparently doesn't like that, given what we're seeing in the habitat Hmm. in boot spring and this one last tree. So we have options now that we can do some things, but we need to act. Uh, And I'd rather act now and be wrong that it's a distinct species than to not act and then have lost our opportunity.
0: Yeah, geez. I mean, just the the weighing it seems so obvious, but that it that brings up an interesting sort of like bigger philosophical question is in someone for someone like you that studies this stuff that spends hours and hours I don't know how you sleep, but <laughs> the effort you put into understanding extinction and fighting against it and doing what you can, it it it, it adds to that sort of roller coaster of emotions. Oh my god, we potentially found something crap there's only one of them that that's also got to be sort of that double-edged sword and yeah if you don't step in now well then might as well just write it off entirely but boy that is a conundrum in and of itself especially for something that you'd ideally like to find at least a couple more
1: yeah and there could be more hiding out there in in big bend it's a big place right it's not quite the size of delaware (laughs) but... <laughs> um, very limited roads, but a lot of it's desert. So that's not acceptable habitat. But there's a lot of remote canyons. So we're talking, really talking about a needle in a haystack to find this, this tree, but that's what we have. We have one and we need to act on that one to prevent its extinction. You know, I think about like Franklinia, which is probably the most famous mm-hmm. extinct plant. It's this beautiful shrub that's in hun- literally hundreds of gardens. It's a small tree, hundreds of gardens. Uh, across the globe, and it's extinct in the wild. We don't know where it was at. We know about where it was along the Altamaha River. We don't know why it went extinct, but thank God we have this thing in conservation gardens yeah. instead of it being completely extinct. Like we at least have it as like a black rhino to reach the people and talk about the plight of extinct plants.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. If anything, it serves as a poignant reminder. Of yeah. how quickly and easily things can just wink out, and and you stop to think of like how many examples we just didn't get to in time.
1: Yeah, that's or were never even documented before they went extinct. Right. There's this. There's this whole arena of dark extinctions. Yeah. Which is, um, and there have been four extinct plants identified since 1995, just from old herbarium records. Dang. And I guarantee there's more out there in the herbarium lurking to be discovered. Like I described that, that Marshallia grandiflora as I recognize it as an extinct plant because of, I was a field botanist and I was looking at range maps and I'm like, (laughs) well, that's really strange distribution for Marshallia grandiflora. I know that from Pennsylvania on large river systems in heavy energy streams. We don't have that where this plant was collected in North Carolina. And I looked at the specimens and I was just struck at how different. This thing looked from, you know, right. what was being called Grandiflora in the Midwest and in in like the pen, Pennsylvania to Tennessee. And it, over the time, Derek Poindexter, Alan Weakley and I worked to recognize that as its own species that was extinct already. And there have been four of those. Um, and they've been spread across the U.S. Like the Pacific Northwest has one, California has one, Florida has one, and now we in North Carolina have a dark extinction. Wow, And, and that's just, thankfully, someone collected this 100 years ago because you better believe there's untold numbers oh, of yeah. plants that went extinct that were never documented by right. botanists.
0: Right. And like marshallia has got a lot going for it as a genus in that it is charismatic, it's beautiful. It's People pretty. see it and they grab it. That's Imagine right. all those weird little mudflat things are just obscure, yeah. not pretty flowered kind of stuff. I mean, stuff that gets you and I excited, but let's be honest.
1: <laughs> Look, if and I understand if I was a new, let's say a new continent was discovered and we went to botanize and describe the plants, we're not gravitating to the difficult groups. Right. We're describing the readily distinguishable things around us, right? And even the extinction data argues that, like, there was one sedge and one grass on that extinction list, and that is definitely an artifact of collecting. Yeah. People avoid
0: those groups, and yeah. I understand it. I'm one of them, honestly. The amount of oh, care- come on, man! I know, but like CareXSP, sp. As soon as you say dissecting scope, I'm like, I can't. I'm sorry, <laughs> retirement project, maybe. <laughs> I'm focusing to on the Oaks. To 0.1 I, millimeter I do like a challenge I will I will definitely rock the Oaks for now uh maybe Good. maybe I'll graduate into critigas so you never know
1: oh we would we need the help <laughs> I, I mean it like if there's one group I can wave a magic wand and have an answer for it, it would be the hawthorns there yes. are so many names in the literature that we don't know what to do with them they could be real they could be extinct they could be rare they could be common we yeah. don't even know and no experts, you really don't agree. And in the southeast, you have a beautiful book by Lance called Hawes. If you don't have that, it's a great plug for Ron's book. Okay, uh, pick it up. It's it's cheap. He sells them on his website. I think they're like twenty five bucks, and I think they come autographed. Awesome. Nice. They're beautiful color photos, distribution maps, keys.
0: Well, I've taken Ron Lance's. Uh, I, I've done some workshops, oak identification workshops with him, and cool. I can't talk about a more level headed, down to earth yes. human to teach you plant an obscure and difficult plant id shout out to ron lance
1: yeah he's been a big partner in this um extinction gardens thing i've been putting together as well nice um i
0: do want to touch on that but i do want to kind of come back to where you're at right now with nature serve uh, as we close sure. the kind of door in the conversation here with quercus tartifolia how do you handle something that was thought to be extinct i mean you mentioned gh and gx What happens when you find that one specimen? I mean, obviously you can change the ranking, but at the same time, what the hell else? Like you, you, you check your boxes, you grab some graphs, you hope it works. Like what changes professionally at that point? Does the regulations change? I mean, it's not a list. It's uh, nothing much, I'm guessing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's a rare day we get to move a plant from GH to G1 and that that's not undercut that. That's an exciting day. Yeah. That's awesome. Because we have something to conserve now. Yeah. Now, m- the majority of plants that are known from just one site, which corcus tardifolia now fits the definition of. It. <laughs> uh, and it fit it before, right? It was known from just this one place extinct. Now it's found in this one place nearby. Most of these plants of one known occurrence are not federally listed. Yeah. Um, in our, In our data set right now, we have about 90 OCO plants, one known occurrence plants, it, we've identified in nine are federally listed only nine of Damn. them because and i'm not going to cast dispersions on this idea but the feds the u.s fish and wildlife service argue that intrinsic rarity does not warrant listing hmm. so there's a plant in uh, north carolina called the yadkin river goldenrod solidago plumosa that was thought to be extinct hadn't been collected in i think 100 years and then it was independently rediscovered by two botanists so within in the same week wow it was, uh, I believe, Alan Weekly and Stephen Leonard. Hmm. I think were the two botanists who rediscovered it. But it was later petitioned to be federally listed, and the 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 U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service denied the petition because the popula the known population, the one occurrence was on protected land owned by the power company, and they were managing it to ensure its long-term viability. Okay. Now that's that's a tough. That's yeah. a tough uh, bar for definition, though, because yeah. it's hard to think of any plant. That, like that I can think of numerous federally listed plants that are on federal property that are being managed. Yeah. And if that's the definition, you could ar- conceivably say we don't need to, to list any plant on federal land if it's being managed for its long-term viability. Right. So I think there's some some things to consider there. I think if you're that rare, you are intrinsically vulnerable with extinction. Yeah. And sh- you should be prioritized. Yeah. But policy wise, we just don't have a mechanism to really protect those things.
0: Well, and it goes to show you sort of the nuanced is the kind and generous word I'm going to use to making these decisions because science can give us the data. It's the value systems that then get navigated. Um, and without, you know, getting too crazy into our opinions on it, that's for beers and a you and me in the wall kind of conversation. It's you look at like, what is in, what is available for endangered species act funding? And then you go, okay, cool. There's a huge pool of funding there. And then you go, okay, how many of those are plants? Very few of them. And then you think yeah. about the, the little bit that even gets funded. It, it's, it's kind of a nightmare scenario. And that's why I think talking about plants and plant conservation, like, man, we could solve a lot of issues if we just started with the plants, but I digress.
1: Well, there's hope there, right? You might've heard of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Indeed, Like there's real hope. Like that will be a meaningful change in the way um, the feds define wildlife. Like the way I put this is is like traditionally wildlife was basically hooks, fur, and fangs, like those game species. (laughs) But wildlife should be two words. It should be wild life. And that should include plants because they're an integral component of wildlife. And that's what Rawalwood would do and it would give all states a lot of money for that could be available for plant conservation. That could be probably the biggest gain we could get. Because people don't like to hear this. When we talk about capacity issues in plant conservation, we talk about staffing. We talk about all other sorts of resources. But most of those problems distill down to money. Right. We just don't have the money to hire more people. We don't have the money to present at conferences or to do the research or to do the molecular analysis. It all comes down to money. Yeah.
0: It's funny. I mean, it's, it's cynical, but it's reality. And I think the more we operate in reality, the quicker we can kind of find solutions instead of harping on idealism all the time. But that's a whole different conversation entirely. I want to come back to this idea of extinction garden. This is awesome because it, it combines two great loves of mine is, is plant conservation and gardening, being able to work with plants because just like having that search image, it helps a ton. The amount yeah. you learn about a species and its natural history and behavior through growing it, boy, we can we can really set ourselves ahead of the game <laughs> if we just pay a little more attention.
1: Yeah, I was never much of a grower um, when I was living on the eastern shore of Maryland. I thought I had a brown thumb because I had all this dry, sandy, acid, coastal plain <laughs> soil. But my friend Theo Witzel, who used to be Arkansas's state botanist, now he's like the director of their science program in Arkansas Heritage, he said, you don't know it till you grow it. And there's a lot of truth in that statement. Like you learn the plant vegetatively, you learn its phenology, you learn some interesting characters to tell it apart in the field. But I've come come late to my appreciation of gardens through working with groups like the Mount Cuba Center and seeing Mm. like what good plant conservation work can attain. And as you can imagine, the natural heritage programs, they do like the on the ground, the kind of in-situ work. But then we have conservation garden community that kind of does that ex-situ work. And this is a fun way to help bridge the gap with how important these two groups are to work on. You know, like I hope to highlight these OCO plants for in-situ and ex-situ yeah. conservation because we need their seeds in seed bank. We need to grow them, how to grow them when we have their seeds. But also I wanna, I wanna reach the public in the importance of plant conservation in that you know, we, ha- we have our own black rhinos, right? We have these yeah. organisms that are extinct and you can touch them, you can see them, you can appreciate them. So uh, this has been years in the making with one of the, one of the outcomes of the extinct plant work is that there were five plants that were extinct in the wild. There's technically seven, but two are housed overseas at gardens who aren't replying to emails about the identification of their material or if oh, it's still extant.
0: Thanks.
1: So we're going to move forward with the five we know.
0: Cool.
1: Um, so Franklinia, we all know uh, you can buy that. So that's one. Ron Lance, the critiques expert, has helped with two critias nice that are extinct in the wild one of them was the last i believe the last known plant critica's fecunda was at the morton arboretum
0: we talked about that the last time that's we right on. we yeah. worked
1: to identify that so they mailed ron cuttings of that fecunda and he grew them out as he grew out critica's linuginosa, which is another extinct in the wild plant nice and very and very recently maybe may april i went to ron's house picked up like five of these plants and drove them to virginia where I met Amy Highland in the Mount Cuba Center and I handed them off and she took them to Mount Cuba. Nice. So there's three. We have Arctostaphylos franciscana, which is extinct from California. That was one of these plants that pushes the limits of what extinct in the wild means. And that <laughs> it was, it was thought to be extinct and then rediscovered on a roadside leading to the Golden Gate Bridge in 2007. But this was a shovel ready project and there was no stopping it. So the California Native Plant Society and others dug the plant up and moved it to a nearby location where it's doing well but the definition of extinct in the wild is no naturally occurring populations so it yeah. still kind of fits that bucket and it's still a great storyteller sure so that that is being sent um as we speak literally being mailed from the Santa Barbara Botanic Gardens to Mount Cuba so that'll nice. be four and then the last one is Prunus maritima variety gravesii which we have some leads on that uh, was extinct from Connecticut at a single site but it's still grown at Yukon and it's available at some garden. Excellent. So we should have, we should have all five Pokemon (laughs) together um, for this exhibit. Hopefully this year, we're going to let them grow out a little bit because we want flowers. We want to like have some impact with these plants, but we want to kind of get them all together as part of a display or maybe a traveling exhibit to kind of reach people. Like here are the stories of these plants. Here's what we can learn from these plants. And maybe even tied in with like some nice um like herbarium specimens that yeah. are printed of other extinct organisms yeah. or like art artists' renditionings of other extinct plants. Right. That are that are lost to kind of tell the story.
0: Right, right. Because you have poignant examples of what yeah. could have been, but also And current examples. Right. And also these moments of like, holy crap, we stepped in at the bare nick of time. Yeah. And and really I think we're kidding ourselves if we think most people are going to go out to that one site in big bend to go see this one tree or even be able to find it. We're kidding yeah. ourselves, but to bring a traveling exhibit, people can get their heads wrapped around extinction. There's, yeah. there's only birds left. There's no other kinds of dinosaurs left. Right. And like people get that regardless of where people land on interest in plants, people can at least understand lost forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, kind of a sad thing to focus on. And I don't like focusing on the negative, but it's a great teaching tool,
0: I think. Well, and I think the cultivation side of it shows things can be done. Not that that's our fail safe. And that's a thing that we need to go, oh, we don't have to worry. We'll just cultivate the heck out of it because I, you know, the horticultural industry thrives on lack of diversity in the genetic world. uh, And we need to rethink that. But, you know, knowing that Ron Lance is one dude. growing an extinct two extinct species like there's a lot of one people out there that can make a difference and and have a say and if we act wisely we don't need to let it get to that point
1: yeah that's the end game right is those are conservation failures essentially there's no place left on the whole planet for this plant right like these things evolved millions of years ago and something's changed recently that they no longer have a home anywhere. And yeah. that thing that's changed is us and our impact on the world. Right. So let's learn from these mistakes. Let's move forward in a prioritize the way to prevent future extinction events, but also highlight this to the public when, cause most people can't name an extinct plant. They can <sighs> name, you know, maybe a bird, bird or two. Yeah. Like dinosaurs. Okay. A dodo. Uh, and then it quickly, that's it. And it quickly just tails off. Yeah. And even most botanists can't tell you many extinct plants. And that's one of the things that started that extinct plant work for me is how do we not know what's been lost?
0: Terrible admittance, but yeah, you're the reason I can <laughs> like Yeah. Because it, a lot of them are the obscure ones, but then there's some high profile cases that, you know, you can kind of hinge on and, and it's nice to see those physical examples. But as a botanist working for NatureServe, there's no right or wrong answer to this question. I'm just curious because... You sit with botanists for long enough, you have enough conversations over beers or whatever, and you hear that, well, it's not a natural population. It's it's it was it's kind of like the Arctostaphylos. It's extinct in the yeah. wild by our strictest definition, but if you moved it and it's doing well, you can you can see a lot of cases where this plant isn't necessarily found here, but it's established, it's growing, it's reproducing. Where do you kind of fall out on that? I mean, are we kidding ourselves to think that like falling back on natural, quote-unquote, as the strictest definition populations are all that matters, or do we have to start just kind of picking ourselves up and going, well, at least it's here?
1: <laughs> well, there's a couple of things here. So first, natural really matters because if it doesn't, then we can just start planting whatever we want and protecting gardens. Okay. And I don't think anybody's advocating for sure. That, sure right? Yeah, no. natural matters. And we just need to think about how to interpret when and how to deal with the planted things. And the whole arena of assisted migration and translocation is gonna be a real big upcoming science. Yeah. Like if you look at Florida and just at the projections of sea level rise and human habitat expansion and destruction, we're either going to have to say, all right, these 24 plants are going to go extinct and we're okay with it, or we have to move them. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather move them than move them just to a garden. Right. But we should also flag them for tracking purposes. So we know what we've done to mitigate and move these species. Yeah. Because it really gets complicated in the, in the Mid-Atlantic. I encountered numerous sites that were, for lack of a better word, polluted with planted material, hmm. and that really has conservation implications. Like I remember going to this one site and I'm like, oh, we have a new a new spot for purple pitcher plant. I was tracked in Maryland, and I'm like, wait, leather leaf that hasn't been seen on the Delmarva since like 1880. And I'm like, oh, these are these are planted here. Yeah. And if I didn't know enough. We could have spent conservation dollars on that site. Right. But no, I don't think anyone would advocate that we should spend conservation dollars on that site. That is clearly planted material. Yeah. So our conservation dollars need to go to keeping systems intact and working. Right. Now, that doesn't mean we can't translocate and assisted migrate on purpose and intentionally, but it should be like, it should not be a one-off person, nobody Johnny apple seeding things. Mm-hmm. It should be a like a consensus of a group And then we should track that information carefully so we know what we're doing and when it's happened. Like Georgia, Atlanta Botanical Gardens, they do this pretty well with their database. And frankly, that's where a lot of programs are going to have to go when thinking about keeping species extant, which is the opposite of extinct, in our landscapes.
0: How dare you bring nuance into this discussion? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's true. Everything is in the weeds.
1: Everything we do is in the weeds when you think about it. Um, like I love a garden too but I would hate to see if we have $10,000 to spend on protecting nature it go to a place that was planted. Right. And that's what happens most of the time is we don't know it's been planted. Right. And then it accidentally becomes a conservation target.
0: Right. And I am a huge proponent of guerrilla gardening and I understand why it's a sexy <laughs> and appealing topic to a point to a point right and I think of examples like the terea which has a, a systemic illness in it that could harm other vegetation let alone we don't know what's happening on the landscape if you release it or uh or dendropanax or whatever it is the ghost orchid that's self-incompatible if you clone a bunch of them throw them out well you just created a bunch of clones that can't reproduce and so i want to see those conversations turning more towards the scientific end of it like you said a group consensus we've had a group of people experts talking about this and we figured out a way to do it right not just well, no one's doing it. I'm stepping in. I'm going to be rogue and I'm a cowboy. You know, it's yeah. There's it's... a lot.
1: There's a lot of that, unfortunately. And I think heart is in the right place a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, totally. But there's real impacts when that's done, and and that's it's some it's, it's, it's a challenge for us all to disentangle what's naturally occurring and what's gorilla gardened. And sometimes those conver- those decisions are are big. Yeah, and the conversations are big.
0: Yeah. But it's a good call to get involved, right? I mean, talk to people. You are a very approachable human being. You're not in an ivory tower. You're not closed off from the world. If people have questions, there's people out there to help kind of at least approach them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. And there are those ivory tower people out there, but I encounter them fewer and fewer, which is good. And I think, frankly, and this is one of those things where I don't want to sound self aggrandizing, but in this position at NatureServe, I'm in a position to help lead conservation. And I think attitudes can kind of trickle down yeah. and like what's an acceptable attitude and acceptable way to behave. And hopefully that, you know, my openness and willingness to communicate with people will trickle down and people will approach me with big questions if they have questions and not just view it as ivory towered, or maybe we'll get consensus on how to best deal with things or we can prioritize groups of organisms that actually need to be moved before they go extinct. And then as a community do it, yeah. not just individuals shooting from the hip.
0: No, I'm with you. I feel like I talk to a lot of people and that ivory tower closed off territoriality is, it's a dying breed and good riddance as far as I'm yeah. concerned. So, but Wes, yeah. this has been absolutely enlightening. If people want to find out more about your work, the work of NatureServe or any of your colleagues, where do they start looking?
1: Well, NatureServe.org is the website. Uh, if you've never seen NatureServe Explorer, it's always fun to poke around on there, it put in the plant it. or animal and see what it's <laughs> ranked and its distribution. I maintain a website, wesley napcom You can find me there, and I'm on all the instas and Facebooks and all that at, at WM-NAP. You can find me. Um, other than that, you know, you can, I'm easily Googleable, and I, sh- <laughs> I show up for things like this when asked. Yeah. You're, you're a good sport. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, happy to be here. Keep preaching the good word, brother.
0: I'm trying. Well, Wes, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your enthusiasm and thanks for your knowledge and efforts, man. We really appreciate the plants, appreciate it. And shout out to all your colleagues that uh, help you do what you do. Thanks. All right. All right. Amazing stuff. Inspirational stuff. I thank Wes for taking time out of what is a very busy schedule to talk with us. I mean it. I don't know when that man sleeps, but I thank him in the meantime for staying up to talk with us about all of this important work. Of course, all of the relevant links for everything we talked about can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast. Go check them out. And while you're there, consider supporting the show via Patreon by picking up a copy of my book, buying some of our customizable merch or stickers. And all of those links are in the show notes as well. So go check those out and consider supporting the show because I couldn't be doing it without support. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Till next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.